A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have an awful lot to do, ladies and gentlemen. It's a bit murky out there. It is Thursday. We are into the first week of November and there are several issues that I would like to get across to you. First of all, shall we talk about Albania, a country uh, which apparently has provided us with a great deal of people, a country uh, which apparently is not happy with us because we are apparently demonising their countrymen. Let me put a couple of points to you at this juncture, right? We are in the midst of a migrant crisis. People are travelling to this country illegally. People are coming into this country without permission. People are arriving on our shores who do not have papers, who do not have identifying papers, who do not have passports. People who have been thrown out of this country, perhaps, because of things that they may have done in the past. What we do know is that Albanian men make up a large proportion uh, of our jail population. There are more Albanians in prison per capita of any other nationality in the country, okay? We also know that Albanian drug gangs are running most of the cocaine and marijuana into this country, right? The Albanian Prime Minister is not happy. He says there's an awful lot of people who come to this country to work in honest businesses. Yes, that's true. There are some who do that. And when they do that, they apply for visas and they fly here on £40 flights and they come and work here and pay taxes. The ones who are coming on the dinghies are not doing that. The reason they are coming on dinghies is because they wish to come illegally because they've either already been thrown out of the country or they are involved in criminal enterprises. They are claiming, by the way, that they are being trafficked here. Nobody's forcing them to be trafficked here. Nobody's going into Albania and saying, would you like to be trafficked to Britain? No. They are coming to Britain to work in criminal enterprises. They are claiming that they're trafficked here because they know that if they say that, they will be allowed to stay because our useless and hopeless asylum laws mean that that can be given uh, permission. Okay? So here's what we need to do. We need to fix the Slavery Act, the Modern Slavery Act, because many of these people who claim that they're being trafficked here are also coming here to work as slaves, either in prostitution or in drug gangs uh, or in other businesses that the Albanian drug masters are running. This is gangmaster territory, ladies and gentlemen. Let us not pretend that it is anything else. Let us not pretend that we are demonising a country. Let us not pretend that Albania, known for being a very, very corrupt nation formerly, it may well not be now, a nation that is seeking European Union membership, a nation that is part of NATO, a nation that is part uh, of the European uh, agenda, 
There is no need for people to come here illegally from Albania. Let's put it out there, let's get it straight, and let's not take any cojones and rubbish from the Albanian Prime Minister. Thank you very much indeed. Let's also talk about the story on the front page of the Times today. Census statistics are now showing that because of an influx of people from Romania, the number of people born in this country uh, who live in this country has been reduced, right? One in six of the population for the first time has been born outside of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We're going to speak to Baroness Kate Howey coming up very shortly. We'll ask her about a great many things, including the Northern Ireland Protocol, including what is going on uh, with our attitude to politicians, including why the government can't seem to make a decision and stick with it. Also, of course, we'll be talking about Matt Hancock, still a demonised figure, still somebody who's now, as we've learned, making £400,000 for going into the jungle while he's supposed to be working as an MP. We'll be talking about the BBC as well. Uh, it is Thursday, so we will be talking uh, to Helena Nicola of the Thursday Club. Sebastian Gorker is here as well. We'll have the Daily Biden. Why wouldn't we? And, of course, the other big thing that's happening during the show today, interest rates probably going to be going up thanks to the Bank of England uh, reacting to the way the economy is going. We want to hear from you, of course, as well. 0344 499 is the number. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Let's get it on. It's a very good morning and a very good welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. There's much to do uh, and there is much uh, to say as well. Let us start off, of course, with Rishi Sunak. He says he's preparing a big tax grab from energy firms. Now, the trouble with Rishi Sunak right now, it seems to me, is he can't make up his mind who he is. Is he a tax and spend Tory? Is he somebody who wants to have interest rates rising and rising and rising? I was listening last night uh, to first edition with Tom Newton Dunn. Uh, he had Danny Blanchflower on. He's an economist of some renown. As I said, uh, he's quite often an economist who verges towards anti-Toryism. But he basically said uh, that the Americans have made a mistake by putting their interest rates up and the British are about to do the same thing. And there is no earthly reason why they should do it. So let's kick things off on the financial front, first of all, uh, with Baroness Kate Hurry. Kate, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for talking to us. We haven't talked to you for a long time, it seems to me, which is very remiss of us. So welcome. Um, what do you make of uh, what the Bank of England are about to do? Because you can never really find two economists that agree with each other. Um, but Danny Blanchflower said last night that he thought this would be a mistake to raise the interest rates because he thinks that we've reached kind of peak inflation. And his argument was that inflation is all about sort of 12 monthly um, uh, sort of circular figures. And as we lose one month, we gain another. And the, 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 the month that we're going to lose has inflation around about two, two and a half percent, whereas the one we're entering isn't as high as that. Yes, well, I, I had thought that we had kind of hopefully reached the peak of concern and worry that things had begun to look like they might be getting better. Uh, and I think the problem with the Bank of England is they are always going to uh, seem to always want to be on the, you know, the kind of worrying side. Mm. The, 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 and therefore, they are likely, uh, you know, to go ahead and raise. But to raise it by three quarters of a percent would be the biggest rise uh, in in one go since I think someone said 1989. Uh, so it's it, it would be quite a, a shift and would be very concerning for people who've who've obviously got mortgages. I have to say, of course, that a lot of 
older pensioners who maybe have just a little bit of money saved and have had for some time and have been getting no interest hardly whatsoever for years. Um, so some of them will be, you know, quite quite relaxed at the interest rates going up. But on the whole, we don't want to go back to what it was like. I mean, you will remember and I will remember when we had interest rates of, what, double figures. Absolutely. Um, I remember 15%. Unbelievable that now people are complaining, you know, so much (laughs) going up when when we've had three or four for a long time with, you know, no interest whatsoever. But having said that, I mean, I, one economist, I listen to one and they'll say one thing and another one says another. Um, And in the end, Rishi Sunak and the Chancellor are going to just decide uh, in, in overall in this package that we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time. But today we will likely see it go up, but hopefully not by three-quarters of a percent. No, I think that is basically the problem. Because we're entering winter. We've been fortunate so far um, that the weather hasn't been too cold. I mean, it's been pretty stormy lately, but it hasn't got cold. I think when it starts to get colder and people start to think about putting the heating on because maybe they haven't yet, and start to, to, to realise how much more money they're going to have to spend on, on that, plus mortgages going up. That's going to be a kind of triple whammy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, people haven't felt the real effects yet. I mean, prices and food and so on have been going up. They're going up sort of gradually for some time. Uh, but the heating issue is going to be the one that really, really will will get people concerned. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm going to upset people again by saying that, you know, we all have to accept now that the costs are going to go up for a while. And we've got to, you know, realise too that we need to be careful about how we're using using our heat. We, you know, we've had a very long period of being able to, you know, not worry about things like that for most people. Obviously, there's always some people at the very, who are the very poorest who yeah. are always worried about that. But the government has to make sure that they're protected. And I think the rest of us just have to kind of, um, you know, make sure that we're doing as, as saving things as much as possible. And, you know, I, I, I got a huge, huge stick for saying wearing more jumpers. But um, I'm afraid that is the reality. Yeah. Too, we, well, we listen, need, there, there we are around in our homes in T-shirts and things if you expect if you expect to have lower heating no. bills. Well, I mean, you and I both lived through the 70s when we had proper three-day weeks and, and, and entire days with no power. And you know, I'm not saying we, we should welcome that because we shouldn't no. because the government has, has woefully underplayed our energy policy and they haven't really planned for the future for many, many years, maybe two decades. And so I blame them. But certainly when you hear schools saying, oh, we're thinking we might just close for one day a week because we can't afford to heat the school. You don't need to heat the school. Have the kids run around the playground a couple of uh, hours a day and they'll be fine. Yeah, no, I mean, we have, I mean, I do think we we have got now a a generation of of youngsters, it's not their fault, that have been kind of brought up in a very, um, you know, expecting to get everything they want. I mean, I, you know, coming up to Christmas now, I mean, I remember Christmas, you were absolutely delighted when you got something, you know, you got a little bit of extra something, you didn't get all the things that children used to, to today. And I think, I think, honestly, we, you know, our society has, 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 has got a kind of, almost greed mentality about it now that we expect everything i'm just getting old and old-fashioned i suppose but you know i do think there's an awful lot of people out there with common sense who will be managing this difficulty but uh we need to make sure and we always do that the very very first the genuinely vulnerable are are helped and and um you know i hope that's what any government Mm. whether it's a conservative or a labor government would do yes and it was only two weeks ago really that we were being told that you know the conservative party was in crisis the government didn't know what it was doing we needed a general election you know rishi sunak is now in charge he's come in 
well, they wanted, yeah, but they wanted rid of both Boris and then they wanted rid of Liz Truss, and uh, now they've got who they want. They'll probably they being the uh, well, we know who they are these days. Some aspects of the media and some parts of the establishment. And now they've got who they've been wanting for some time, mm. Rishi Sunak. So we'll see how long that lasts before they start turning on him. Yes, because the problem. Well, I, mean, I think I mean really. I mean I didn't care one way or the other to be honest whether he went to the COP um, conference or not. But to say he wasn't going. And then to be because there was a lot of pressure from from various interests and the campaign groups and some of his own MPs, he changes his mind. Um, he can't keep doing that, you know, otherwise he will get. No, the no, I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I couldn't care less whether he goes or not. I mean, we know that Boris Johnson was a big fan of climate change uh, activity and he wants to try and make the world a better place for some reason. Uh, he believes that some people don't. The bottom line for me was if Rishi Sunak says he's not going to go because he thinks it's more important to stay home and, and figure out what's going on with the economy. That was a good reason not to go. And so now, presumably, uh, he thinks either one, the economy is fixed, which it isn't, or two, it's not as important as it was last week, which seems mad to me. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's I think, you know, that's the first sort of most big U-turn he's made. He'll, he'll be making lots more, I would imagine. And we're going to see, of course, all the things that he promised when he was campaigning. Gradually, they're being whittled away, aren't they? Yeah, I'm just I'm just hopeful that he's not going to whittle away his his uh, support and his very strong views that he had when he was campaigning on um, standing up to the EU over the protocol. Yes. But, you know, who knows on that either? Well, this is it. I mean, we're told he's a very, very uh, hard line Brexiteer. I don't know whether that's your expression uh, or your uh, recognition of him. Uh, but we'll talk about that a bit more. Kate, stay where you are. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with Kate Howey, Baroness Kate Howey of Lyhill and Rathlin, of course, a non-affiliated peer in the House of Lords. We want your calls as well. We're also going to talk about a great many other things. The migrant crisis, how is it going to be solved? There's now uh, supposedly going to be some kind of judicial review into what's going on in Manston, the detention centre, uh, according to Robert Jenrick. But 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Kate Hoey, uh, Baroness Hoey, of course, from Lyle Hill and Rathlin. Uh, let's talk a little bit, uh, Kate, about the European Union, about the fact that the Northern Ireland Protocol is still something uh, which has not yet been sorted out. You know, we got Brexit done, was Boris Johnson's line. And by and large, yes, that's true. But there's an awful lot of bits and pieces still needing to be tied up. What's happening exactly with the Northern Ireland uh, situation? Well, uh, in theory, there are uh, talks going on between the, uh, the UK government and the European Union. Uh, they keep being referred to as technical talks, mm. uh, which is, it's in theory, then officials. Um, the reality is the European Union hasn't changed its uh, negotiating mandate. Sefcovic, their uh, negotiator, is still not allowed, really, to go outside what the mandate he was originally given, which means that nothing fundamental can change. And, of course, so there has been... They have vaguely now, in various uh, ways, accepted that there are problems with the protocol and they would like to tinker with them. But, of course, for Northern Ireland, uh, these problems are huge. Uh, they're getting worse. And, of course, we only, we are, we're still in the grace periods, these periods mm. when the, the protocol isn't being fully implicated. In the meantime, of course... Um, the Northern Ireland Assembly has not been functioning since February. There were elections in May, and under the new legislation that was passed last year, um, after a certain period of time, the government must 
call an election. That should have happened last Friday. And this new Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, said he was going to call an election at one minute after midnight. Mm. Well, one minute after midnight came and he didn't call an election. Uh, and there's been more discussions. And it looks like what he's probably trying to do, or maybe he's being pushed into trying to do it, and he's going to have to make a U-turn, is bring forward a piece of legislation going through the House very, very quickly to give another, say, three months in order to allow these negotiations with the European Union to continue. Um, now, the problem is at the moment, people are getting very fed up and very uh, uncertain about what's happening. Mm. And I think it's not good. I mean, most people don't really want an election. It's expensive, it's cold weather, it's all of those sorts of things. But of course, an election also probably won't change very much other than make sure that there's even more votes for the DUP and even more votes for Sinn Féin. So we'll end up in a very similar situation with the DUP having a very strong mandate that they got elected on not to go back into government until the protocol was sorted. So it's, it's, it's a question really of whether the government is prepared to be really... Uh, you know, set some kind of timeline with the European Union mm. and say, look, we've been doing this for long enough. Now, are you going to sort this out or are you not? Uh, and it looks again like there'll be sort of lots of, you know, waffle and lots yeah. of um, compromising around the timelines, but nothing actually changes in Northern Ireland. No. And that is the big problem as well with the migrant crisis, as it's being oh, called. Don't talk I about mean, that. I mean, I'm afraid I'm afraid I have to ask your opinion about you know, it. I get very angry. I, I know. Well, you know, we voted for Brexit. The, 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 the country was supposed to be taking back control of its borders. Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. There are people coming here now uh, willy-nilly, uh, just jump on a dinghy and come with 50 yeah. other people and walk straight into the country, Albanian drug dealers uh, notwithstanding. Um, what's going on and what can we do? Well, I, I mean, I think, I, I think the um, listening to the Albanian... Uh, Prime Minister last night, I, I heard him and I just thought it was really pretty shocking. I mean, a year ago, I visited Dover, I saw what was happening. I made a speech in the House of Lords, we had a debate on it. And I warned that this was going to happen. Mm. It was very clear that the more people were getting in and then being, you know, treated really, really well, going off being put in hotels, the more that was a pull factor for people to come. But now we have seen Albanians as being, you know, clearly they are not um, they're not asylum seekers. They're not refugees. They're migrants. Yeah. They're coming into the country illegally. And I'm, you know, I do think that the way that um, Suella Braverman has been treated because she used a word which I think was, you know, if you look at the dictionary de definition, uh, it is an invasion. Yeah, it, of course. It's not it's not a, an invasion, you know, like a war, but the word invasion was, was quite a good word to use because it showed that she at last was being honest about the position mm. and about the situation. And the Home Office is in a mess. The Home Office has always been in a mess. I mean, I was a Home Office minister years ago. And then shortly afterwards, you know, people were saying the whole thing needed to be broken up. Uh, I, I think we have to be very firm. We have to actually say, if you come into this country illegally, then if if in the end you can prove you're a really genuine asylum seeker and you've come from somewhere where there is, we know there is terrible situations. But if you're just a, a, you know, coming in because you want to get a, then I'm afraid you have to be put on a plane and sent yeah. back to Albania. And if Albania won't accept that, then we have to look at the kind of support probably that we're giving to Albania in all sorts of ways. You mm. know, our government is putting money into so many other countries um, and those countries never seem to actually respond by being um, 
you know, sensible yeah. and wanting to talk about this. So, I, you know, I think we've got to get tough on this because if, if the um, Albanians get away with this and, and it keeps continuing, it is going to lead to people on the streets being very, very angry. I mean, if I lived where, where some of these people are coming in and then just being able to walk away where they want to and go where they want to, mm. You know, it does make me cross, and I just think that it's not. And the idea, and the the problem is, the establishment want to, and some elements of the media just want to shut the debate down. Yeah. And they do that by trying to say that anyone who's concerned, anyone who speaks out, is some kind of racist. Right. You know, and and it's just so wrong. Well, it is, and also they've and they've sort of finally learned from that argument because even the stupid uh, FBPE brigade can't actually pretend that Albanian people uh, have different coloured skin to us, and so they can't call it racism. So now they call it something else, but they keep kind of finding reasons to say that oh, this is all fine. And I have to say, um, and I'm I'm not in any way castigating Romania here, um, but it figures now uh, from last year's census show that the influx of Romanian people into Britain has pushed into uh, a statistic which says that something like 10 million people who now live in this country were born somewhere else. Now, I don't have a problem with that, but let's not pretend that doesn't have an impact on the people who were born here and the people who have lived here for generations, right? Because it means that uh, in terms of the number of people born in Romania and living in England, it's grown by 576% since the previous census, uh, which was back in 2014, I think, or 2011. Um, It's gone from 80,000 in 2011 to 539,000. Now, you can't pretend that that does not have an impact because it does. Well, of course, under the under the Blair government, we we allowed um, uh, when some of these countries succeeded to went into the European Union, we allowed them immediately to be able to move and have free movement. Whereas other European countries stopped that for at least five, seven years. Uh, the, I, I mean, I, I I'm like you. I don't mind. It's great having people from different countries living here. I don't mind that at all, as long as they when they're here, they they do like people have to do particularly in america where once you're in america whatever you're wherever you've come from you're an american and you know you, you have a you have you sign up to being doing things in 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 the american way mm. and somehow here we because of this idea that we have to let everybody sort of continue to totally live their own lives we get kind of you know areas where there's nobody but from uh, from a particular uh, part of the world mm. and i don't think that's good for you know race relations, multiculturalism, or whatever you want to call it. I I, I just think that um, for most people, they are very, very good in this country about welcoming people who are genuinely coming here to, 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 you know, to make their lives better and to work hard mm. and to be part of the British uh, um, situation. But these Albanians, most of them, I'm sure there are one or two individuals who are different, but most of them are coming um, just because they want to get involved in some of the easy ways that they they have found in the past here to make money, and that is in drugs and in all sorts of other antisocial, illegal yes. ways. No, I know. I've only got about ten seconds left, or I'm going to be in trouble. The big question of the day: They're taking bounties out of the box of celebrations for your Christmas oh, I chocolates. I mean, what a tragedy that is. Well, I lo- I I mean, I genuinely love bounties. I, if I'm going in, you know, going on a train station train or anything, and I go in to get a bar of chocolate, I will buy either a, a bounty our crunchy or both there you go kate ho he said it uh, like it is thank you very much indeed we'll see you soon bounties going out of the celebrations box it's an absolute outrage this is talk tv 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are, of course, the home of common sense. And if you're watching Talk TV at home, don't forget you can continue listening to the programme while you're in the car on Talk Radio. And if you are also watching on YouTube, uh, please do remember to subscribe because if you do that, uh, you will then get all the other material that we put out, all sorts of different uh, interviews, all sorts of bits of different content going on. You will also have seen uh, something we'll talk about a little bit later on. Myself and Kevin O'Sullivan doing a live show uh, coming up in December. Uh, in London here near Waterloo uh, if you're around uh, December the 16th is the date of it and it's an afternoon show so you won't even have to stay out late you can get home early Uh, doesn't matter how much you drink you'll still be able to have a hangover free day the next day so right now though let's talk to Martin van der Weyer business editor at The Spectator because we are expecting around about midday today the Bank of England to raise interest rates once more uh, which of course will have an impact on people's mortgages will have an impact on people's savings will have an impact on all manner of things the reasoning behind it is that it's supposed to supposedly stall inflation, which we were told the other day is now running at plus 11 percent. Let's find out from Martin why they're doing it and whether it will work. Martin, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Good Thanks morning, very much for joining us. Now, um, is it something that they need to do? I've heard some economists and I know Danny Blanchflower is not one of my favourite economists, but he said this last night uh, that he didn't think it was necessary. He didn't think that the interest rates should be put up because he thought that we had reached a sort of peak point of inflation already uh, and it will start to come down any day now. Um, well, I, I'm rather with you that um, you sort of take what Danny Blanchflower says and kind of go in the opposite direction. <laughs> um with respect to him, yes. distinguished economist, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, yes. So do they need to do this now? They probably do. Is this the last interest rate rise? Almost certainly not. So whatever they do today, three quarters of a point, we should be braced for a couple more rises before mm. we do get to the end of this. Uh, the interesting question, I think what may be in Danny's thoughts, is that this has been largely externally driven it's been driven by covid effects Mm. and ukraine war effects and if natural gas prices are starting to drift downwards and so on if if good supply is easing that caused this in the first place then why do you need to put the interest rates Mm. up well the answer to that is because if those external inflation forces are leading to higher wage rises higher prices of goods generally then conventionally the central banks have to take the heat out of the economy and try and suppress those kind of secondary inflation effects. But I think it is perfectly true that the external inflation spike um, is going to subside in due course, but we're not at that point yet. This is all priced in, the markets are expecting this. They'd be more, there'd be more turmoil if if we didn't have this rise today and it won't be the last rise uh, but it is jolly hard on mortgage borrowers who yeah. just come off fixed rate onto variable rates that's mm. for sure i mean there are two schools of thought here one of them is that for those of us who are old enough to remember it you know buying a house was always a bit of a gamble it wasn't necessarily something that you expected to accrue money by doing um and so to, to my mind an awful lot of people who are moaning and groaning about their interest rates going up and their mortgage rates going up um that's what happens when you buy a house? Unfortunately, you are subject to the vagaries of ec- economic policy. So just deal with it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, uh, I yeah, mean, I know it's an unpopular view, but it's reality. Hard, that's a bit of a hard line. Let's have sympathy for people who are suddenly having a chunk of their disposable income eaten by, you know, a leap in their monthly 
mortgage costs. That is quite painful. You're perfectly correct. In the long term, really, almost no one ever loses out on home ownership. House prices over a long period of time go up steadily. It's your bricks and mortar. You're better to be an owner than a, a renter and so on. This is a temporary phenomenon, perhaps for two or three years. Uh, all, all of this is true. Um, and funnily enough, you might observe if you were out on the Halloween weekend, you might observe consumers don't appear to be slowing down their spending mm. that much, certainly not in central London. My observation was, you know, it's heaving. Yeah. It's busy. People are still out spending. So I don't think the pain has come through uh, as fully as it could or as it as it's going to. And I think you're right in the long run, home ownership is is almost always a good thing. Mm. But I, you know, I do feel sympathy for people who've suddenly been caught by a leap in uh, mortgage costs, which just takes a big chunk out of their disposable yeah. income. And what, are you, and what are you seeing in the markets? Because we were told the markets were not happy with Liz Trust and Quasi Quarteng and their mini budget and all of these so-called unfunded tax cuts that they were putting into place. But it looks more and more to me that that response was an ideological one rather than a financial one, uh, because the markets are kind of continuing. You know, life goes on. There's nobody throwing themselves off buildings. You know, people are still trading and making money or losing money on individual uh, days that they work. You know, why on earth were they so anti that budget? Well, I don't buy any of the sort of conspiracy theory stuff that the blob the you know the imf the, the the bank of england the treasury and so on kind of encourage the markets to do that in order to 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 get rid of uh trust and quarteng who were so i don't buy any of that i think the market reacted in a rational way to a very bad piece of politics mm. a, you know an unfunded uh radical set of tax cuts pushing aside the office for budget responsibility sacking the guy in charge of the treasury it looked like cambodia mm. for a few days you know year zero and pol pot <laughs> um it was really uh i'm not at all surprised the markets reacted like that but what's happened since is they think okay the new combination hunt and rishi sunak that looks much more sensible. Everything they've said so far sounds sensible. So the expectation during the, you know, cataclysm of Kwateng, as it were, was that rates might rise well above 5% mm. towards 6%. Now the market has calmed down, but it's still saying rates could rise above 4%. So, you know, and, and the cost of government borrowing has come down a bit. So they've calmed down, but it doesn't mean they were wrong mm. to get in a fever in the first place. Sure. I think they were right. And if uh, on the 17th of November uh, they do something similar, uh, will that mean that Sunak and uh, Hunt have to be out of a job? Because I presume they won't do that because they like Sunak I, I, and Hunt. You know, I, I mean, you know, anything can happen in this strange world of U-turns and what have you. But I don't think there's the slightest chance of them uh, coming out with something as uh, foolish and radical as, as Kwasi's mini budget i think every single signal we've had is that there are going to be spending cuts there are going to be more tax rises there's shilly shallying mm. around the question of windfall taxes because it's highly politically sensitive and they're being lobbied like crazy by the banks and the oil companies and the energy suppliers and so on but i i'd be amazed if we don't have some more uh swinging 
windfall taxes because yeah. you know it's like the whatever we call Willie Sutton. The chap said, "Why rob banks? Because that's where the money is. <laughs> the money is piled up." Well, indeed. Up I in mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, more windfall taxes, but better they no, tax me, them. Me neither. But but here it's so extreme. Mm. Uh, well, better they tax um, the oil companies than they tax us, I suppose, is the uh, bottom line. Final question for you, uh, Martin. A very, very, very uh, important one, uh, not necessarily on the economic front. Bounty uh, is being removed uh, as a chocolate bar from the boxes of celebrations. Now, even if you don't normally eat chocolate, everybody sees a box of celebrations at Christmas. Christmas is not that far away. Um, your view on the removal of the bounty, what do you think? Well, I was, I mean, I thought, oh, that's a trivial story. But, but it isn't. Okay, I rather like a bounty, but I haven't <laughs> thought about a bounty for many, many years. There used to be rather beautiful adverts and sort of. They did. I don't know what it was. South Pacific beaches yeah. or something. And in the days when adverts could have scantily clad ladies, you know, on car- on, on beaches. Yeah. Opening opening so, coconuts. So in my mind, there's a positive association <laughs> with the bounty. So I I feel sad that it's going. But yes. Something I'm going to feel. In fact, sad you know what? I'm going to I'm going to ask to see if we can. See if we can find that advert, because I think we should yes, play it. I think it's just for old time's sake. Thank you very much well. indeed. Martin Vanterweyer, business editor, The Spectator. Another one uh, of those people who is rather forlorn uh, that the bounty is to be no more. Uh, they're getting rid of it. Why do they make these decisions? Who makes them? What's wrong with them? Well, just leave it as it is, for heaven's sake. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up later on uh, in this week, of course, Plank of the Week uh, is going to be on at 7 o'clock on Friday night. Uh, and Matt Hancock may well figure the sun this morning. You've got a story saying, forget about the 300000 he's supposed to be getting. Forget about the 350000 he's supposed to be getting from I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Turns out he's getting £400,000. This as a serving MP, right? This is a bloke who says that while he's in the jungle eating kangaroo's penis, he will be able to answer any question you've got from your constituency office. Well, obviously, that's not true, is it? Matt Hancock is a disgrace. There is no question about that. Matt Hancock is possibly the most unpopular man in Britain right now, uh, and we're going to be giving him a bit of a shoeing later on uh, as he prepares to go out to Australia uh, and be the sort of spare cog over there for I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He's not a celebrity. Uh, he should get out of here, but he should also quit his job as an MP, in my view. We're also going to be talking about the Albanian Prime Minister, who's now being advised, as it turns out, uh, by the chief warmonger-in-chief, Alistair Campbell, the man who sexed up a dossier to take us into the war in Iraq. The man who doesn't know the truth if he falls over it. A man who thinks we should still be in the European Union. A man who made Britain different because of what he did during the time that Tony Blair was in charge of this country. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and the new Labour project archetyped by uh, one and only man, Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, all of that crowd. They have changed Britain forever, right? We're reading this morning that one in six people living here right now uh, was born somewhere else. Now, I'm not xenophobic. I love the world. I love every single country I've ever been to. There are plenty of places that I wouldn't want to live. But Britain is by far and away the greatest country in the world. And I don't mind saying that. And of course, there will be people going, oh, look at him. He's such a xenophobe, such a racist. You know, I'm not a racist. OK, I have plenty of reason to celebrate the world. I have plenty of reason to love people who come from all sorts of parts of the world. But what I don't love is people who come to this country uh, in order to be criminals, in order to commit crime, in order to make our lives more miserable rather than better, right? We're going to talk now uh, to Rafi Heidel-Mankou, uh, who is historian, broadcaster and senior fellow uh, at the New Culture Forum. He's a man who knows a thing or two about the immigration problem in this country because 
Judging from the census that we're seeing on the front page of the Times this morning, it turns out that one in six people from another country, born in another country, uh, was boosted by the fact that Romanian people have been coming here since the last census in 2011, when there were 89,000 or 80,000 Romanians living here. There are now something like 539,000, so almost half a million more Romanians living here than there were in 2011. Now, you can't tell me that this has not changed forever the way that Britain is, because it does. Let's have a look at this. Over the past 25 years, since the election of New Labour in 97, Britain's undergone a profound demographic shift that has fundamentally changed the character of towns and cities across the kingdom. That was a speech made at the New Culture the Forum. Of many of these communities has been altered to such an extent that they're often unrecognisable to the generations that once called them home. From the old mill towns of the north to the heart of our capital city, this demographic change has created parallel societies of segregated populations whose daily lives pass with little or no interaction with wider society. Now, this situation is quite without precedent in our long island story. We've had more immigration to this country in the last 25 years than in the last 2,000 years combined. So whenever people tell you Britain's always been a nation of immigrants, no. Well, that's an interesting take, isn't it? Because we are told that on a very regular basis. Let's talk to Rafi now. Rafi, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Hello there, Mike. Um, extraordinary. Um, very interesting what you said there, but also even more extraordinary than that, uh, the size of the of the Romanian population in this country alone uh, should be cause for, uh, for concern. And I'm not saying that because I don't like people from Romania. I just think it's a very, very big increase. You know, to go from 80,000 people from Romania to over half a million uh, in, the, in the past 10 years is remarkable. Yes, when I saw that stat, stat yesterday, I just immediately thought back to 2014. Remember cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chief Baz went to Luton Airport. To, sh uh, to show how few Romanians and Bulgarians were coming into the country, mm. 2014 being the year that they were allowed unfettered access to the labor market. And just because on that first day there were only a, hand there were only a handful arriving, uh, the left and the mainstream media gleefully poked fun at those of us who said that this was just the, uh, the trickle before the, uh, the tidal wave would mm. come in. And of course, we've seen that. And it was 
One can completely understand why people from poorer nations would want to come to a richer nation. This is no slant against them in any slight against them in any way whatsoever. But no society can sustain such rapid change over such a short period. Mm. Uh, the, the problem here isn't immigration, it's mass migration. Yeah. And mass migration has been completely without parallel. And now, as you now say, one in six people in this country are born abroad. And of course, what that does do is the country needs time to slowly assimilate immigrant populations. My own family are immigrant populations. My mother's family came here in 1940, attached to the Polish government in exile. My father's family from, from Kenya in, in the 1950s and 60s. And they came to countries where they were able to fully assimilate and become fully uh, incorporated into British society. But once you have such large numbers, it's only instinctive that people will form ghettos, mm. just the same way that the English do in the Costa del Sol. And when you have a large number of people together, they won't assimilate. And so you have parts of this country where students actually believe that they're living in Muslim countries and that Britain is 90% Asian. Yeah. Because all that they see around them in places in parts of Burnley and Birmingham and Bradford are people like themselves. And these are the stories that dare not speak their name, aren't they? Because if you raised any of this uh, with particularly left-leaning politicians, they sort of want to shoo you out the door. They don't want you to talk about it. They don't want you to say, I walked down a street in Ealing in West London the other day, which looked like I was in the middle of Damascus. You know, I'm sorry, uh, but that's what it looked like. Every single shop had Arab writing on it. Every single place that was a, a restaurant or a cafe uh, seemed to be... Uh, occupied by people who would have would seemingly came from the Middle East. You know, if you walk down a, a high street in many parts of this country, that's what you see. But you're not allowed to say that because apparently that would be racist. And it's not racist, it's just the truth. Exactly. Do you remember the flat Nigel Farage had when he said people have the right to ride a bus and hear the English language yeah. being spoken? And, you know, just north of Ealing, you've got, you know, Brent and Wembley. Uh, 22% of households in, in Wembley and Brent uh, don't speak any English at home. There's no command of the English language and almost a quarter of residences there. Look, for years we've been told that diversity is a wonderful thing. And yes, to a certain degree it is. But the extreme diversity we're seeing does have a darker side. Mm. And it's more than just having ghettos. It's because a lot of these segregated populations uh, serve almost as petri dishes for the cultivation of cultural practices mm. that we in the West will find abhorrent. And, uh, for example, we, we know full well from research on the Pew Institute and others, that Muslim extremists, Muslims are more likely to hold extremist views if they live in one of these segregated mm. communities. We know also that there's been a rise also in things like the Metropolitan Police are now being given lessons in witchcraft, for example, if you can imagine, because of the rise of those amongst the segregated communities coming from, yeah. from Africa, for example. Right. The female genital mutilation, honor killing. There are a lot of things happening within these corners, and nobody is brave enough, right. as we've seen with the Rotherham grooming scandal, no one's actually brave enough to actually raise the flag on this. No, and it's a terrible state of affairs. I mean, I'm looking at the figures again from the census. 42% of the 10 million born abroad have arrived in the past decade, right, alone. Um, India remains the most common country of birth outside the UK. Poland second, Pakistan third, Romania fourth. So I haven't seen the figures for Poland and Pakistan, but if they're bigger than Romania's figure, which is half a million, uh, that's an awful lot of people. And again, uh, you referred back to uh, the, the Blair years when, remember, when Blair opened the uh, uh, the doors to Polish people and he predicted that 15,000 people would come and a million came and many of them have gone back and many of them came here and sought work and in fact you know I can attest to the fact that I had some very very nice Polish people 
plastering a home that I bought in Scotland and they were very good at it. You know, um, I don't know whether they're still here, but what I do know is that a lot of them had their kids here uh, and then received um, child benefit having gone back to Poland. Well, of course, and well, you, you raise an important point here, and this is fact also, that we simply don't have the infrastructure. So on a practical level, when you have only 40,000 uh, houses being built, but you have almost 10 times that number coming in gross to the country, it's, it's no surprise that we have a housing shortage when we have vastly more numbers of people coming in than we are producing houses. If you want to explain part of the reason for GP surgeries being um, having difficulty getting an appointment there, mm. uh, school places for your children, getting an appointment at the dentist, People, immigrants who can't get positions in the GP, so they're going to the A&E for, yeah. for mild cases to have that done. There's a huge knock-on effect of all this. But let's just, I mean, you raised an important point, five million in the last decade. So we are told that Britain has always been a nation of immigrants, and it is utter rot. You know, under the Romans, we had about 3% of this country was, was born abroad. Under the Normans and the Vikings, we reached a peak of about 5%. Mm. But then for the next thousand years, only about 0.5% of the nation was foreign-born. In 1851, it was 0.5%. In 1901, it was 1.5%. 1951, 4%. 2001, 8%. 2011, it was 12%. Now we're at 16%. I mean, this is simply completely unmanageable. Yeah. And, I mean, interestingly, what you say about the sort of ghetto aspect of it as well, because what you didn't see, I mean, British people travel all around the world, and there's plenty of Brits in all sorts of different countries from, you know, Qatar to Australia. But what you don't see is sort of British ghettos. People don't go to other countries and insist on living like a Briton would live in Britain. You know, they go to another country. Oh, I'm and not live... sure, though. Actually, I think, it's, I think it's human instinct. The old adage was always, when two Englishmen meet, they form a club immediately. And you just have to go to Dubai and you have the English ex- expat community there. You go to Spain, the Costa del Sol. Yes, but what, I'm, what, I, mean, yeah, but, but, but what I mean by that, though, what I mean by that, Rafi, is they don't behave in Dubai as they would behave if they were in London, you know, because there are certain restrictions and local rules and, and, and sort of, you know, habits that they perhaps would leave behind because they're living in a foreign country. We don't seem to well, have that here. Yeah, I, I agree. But the point I want to make is I want people to understand that it's not racist to say what's happening. It's actually human instinct for people to want to congregate with their own kind. And it's human instinct to actually want to speak your own language. And if you don't need to make the effort to speak a foreign language, why would you? Um, so that's what the problem is we have with having mass immigration. There's no incentive for people to actually uh, well, as long as as long as hospitals continue to produce uh, pamphlets and information in fifty five different languages, and as long as courtrooms uh, may manage to supply you with a, uh, a translator every time you get arrested for anything, then that's never going to change, is it? But this is a much more important point. Exactly, not only with the with the provision of services in different languages, but also we're constantly told to celebrate multiculturalism, and we constantly elevate other cultures at the expense of the majority culture, the British culture. We're told to be ashamed of our history. We're told to decolonize our curriculum. We're told that everything, that white men are bad, uh, there's a tear down the statues of your heroes. So how can people coming to this country buy into Britain when all the messages that they're getting around them is that Britain is bad and that the civilization is terrible and that wherever they've come from, uh, is somehow superior? Although, why would you be coming here if, you're, if your own country was so superior to Britain? Yeah, exactly right. And we keep being told again by the left that the place is full of racists and it's a terrible place for people to come and we should stop persecuting them. Well, uh, by my reckoning, uh, if that was the case, nobody would be coming here, but everybody seems to be. Yeah, and also we wouldn't be opening the door so widely if we were such a racist country. But actually, you know, 
if you want to see racism, go to China, right, and see how they treat black people. Go to India, for example, and then you will see true racism. A lot of the countries these people are coming from are actually the racist countries. And we, we know full well from surveys that have been done that Britain and Spain are the two least racist countries in Europe. And that's judged by asking people in polls, yeah. how would you feel if somebody of a different race lived next door to you? And the Brits and the Spanish were the most open to that, yeah. along with the, not unsurprisingly, uh, the Anglosphere, Canadians, Australians, and also South uh, Brazil, actually, which is also understandable. Mm, so this idea that we're a racist country, we are the least racist country in Europe. People need to understand that, or just look at any football match. Yes. Well, I have to say, if Spain is an, is an example of a non-racist country in Europe, then they're in a very bad place because Europe is a lot worse than, than Spain. Spain isn't that great either. Listen, great to talk to you, Rafi. Thank you very much indeed. Rafi Heidel, Mancou, historian, broadcaster, senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Let's talk about this, right? Because nobody does. There will be nobody else talking about this today because they're ashamed, aren't they? The BBC won't be talking about it. How about this from Mark? He says, the BBC live in cloud cuckoo land. We all know they have a left-wing narrative. They ask stupid questions and during lockdowns had no consideration for the cost of living and the everyday person who had their businesses shut. They pushed the lockdown. Absolute disgrace. Well, quite. That's exactly right. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll talk about this. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Steve Baxel, uh, MBE, explorer, adventurer, naturalist as well, of course, a man uh, who perhaps uses television for a slightly more edifying scenario. Steve, a very good morning to you. And a good morning to you too. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, slightly disturbing news uh, we have to bring. Uh, over half of parents stated that their child is not able to name more than 10 real world countries. What on earth are they being taught in school? Uh, even more concerning, perhaps, is that uh, they can name and they are very, very uh, well connected to not real countries. So they can tell you anything about Gotham City or <laughs> Zootropolis right. or, or Neverland, but not necessarily about Buenos Aires or New York or, or Shanghai. And I think that there's there's a lesson there, isn't there? Because this is about realising how young people are connecting to the wider world now. And therefore, what we in the media have to be willing to do to get the same messages across. Mm. I mean, you'd think that we, because we live in an ever more global world and the news tends to be more kind of outreaching, perhaps about things that happen in other countries. You see the floods in Pakistan. Uh, you might see a story from Australia. Um, you know, you see obviously Ukraine and what's going on there and Russia. You would think if kids are, are paying attention that they would be aware of more countries really than, than maybe when, when you and I were growing up. Yeah, you would. And I, I think that things like this this research from Monopoly is is kind of a good wake-up call, isn't it? It's a, it's a good thing that, you know, you and I live in a certain kind of media bubble where that is around us all the time. It's mm. omnipresent. It's what we are most aware of. And knowing that the majority of young people are not it is one of those moments where you think, right, OK, so we know how important a knowledge of the wider world is. Uh, we know how important it is for our young people to be engaged with that. So, so where do we start now? How do we take mm. this on? How do we make sure that they become as, as aware as you might be? Yeah, absolutely right. Another one which struck me was as, as very disturbing as well. Many children have also never heard of major cities, which you'd think even if they're only watching, um, you know, Marvel shows or whatever, they'd know about Los Angeles, Tokyo, Sydney, Beijing, Milan, even Manchester, some people have never heard of. Yeah, I mean, maybe if they've seen it being 
buried under rubble by a giant <laughs> alien spaceship. Right. They, they might be right. aware of it. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, for, for me as someone who's involved in the natural world and in conservation, the, the critical and most important thing really is that, that Jack Cousteau famously said, people protect what they love. And unless young people know about parts of the wider world, how are they going to learn to love it? And then how are they going to learn to want to protect it? You know, unless they know about the real rainforest, right. then why would they want to do anything to stop deforestation? And I think that, you know, it's it's really important to make sure that we we know that that now, if you want to engage with young people, then you have to connect via the virtual mm. world as well as the real world. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, when I was a kid, my parents were very big on uh, taking us to places in Europe and we used to drive there a lot. So you'd actually drive through all these other countries. So I had this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of different parts of Europe. I slept through quite a lot of it as well. So I'm not going to pretend that I was you know, <laughs> Mr. Important. Um, but also uh, we had a game that was called Go. You're probably a bit younger than me, but it was a great game and it was about travel. And you had to try and collect six souvenirs from various places around the world. Um, and you would have to change your currency and all of that. And it really was quite an interesting way. Do you think that there's more parents could be doing, you know, in terms of just educating their kids? Not because if you can't afford to take them to countries, that's one thing. But, you know, what can they do to, to, to kind of improve what they know? Well, this, so this uh, new iteration of the uh, Monopoly board game that's been around for years, which is based around travel, is attempting to do very much mm. that same thing and i think that, that that's really important and i think that you know if we know that augmented reality and virtual reality and and online and tablets and all these things are uh, the main way that young people are interacting with the wider world then we have to find ways of placing this content into that world and then leading them out enticing them out into the into the wild world and that that can start small you know you're talking about driving across europe i, I would say you can start in your local city park you can start by turning over logs and, and leaves and finding invertebrates that you don't know what they are underneath them that sense of curiosity which you you have to start small with and you have to start young with can then lead on to to a greater sense of wanting to find out what the world's all about Great stuff. Good to talk to you, Steve. Uh, second uh, series of his second season, I should say, of his series Expedition on TV right now. Uh, Steve Baxel, MBE Explorer, Adventure Naturalist. Of course, if you want to find out about foreign countries, just walk down the high street uh, because we've got more people born abroad now than ever. This is Talk TV. Mike Graham fighting the good fight with all his might, providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. I'll talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Life just got a lot more expensive since the last time I spoke to you, which was literally three minutes ago. The Bank of England has raised interest rates to 3%. That's 0.75% increased uh, on the benchmark borrowing rate from 2.25%, the highest level since October 2008. They say the hike is needed to keep the lid on soaring inflation, which hit a joint 40-year high of 10.1% in September. And by the way, it's still going up, right? The Bank of England's main interest rate has not gone up this fast since November 1989, when it rose from 13.75% to 14.875%. And I remember those days well, 
Those were the days when a lot of people had to just give up their house because they couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. We're told now that this particular right, uh, well, if you have a £300,000 mortgage, put your business rate up, put your business end rate up, if you say, uh, to pay for your mortgage every single month by a couple of hundred quid, which is a non, an, another amount of money which a lot of people won't be able to afford to pay. We'll bring you the basic real, real rules on this uh, as we go through this hour. We will bring you expert advice on what you can do. If you've got a fixed rate mortgage right now, you'll probably be okay for a while. But when you have to reapply and rechange that mortgage and reset it, uh, it will be going up, ladies and gentlemen. Now, whether this is any good uh, for the economy will remain to be seen. But what we can say is that the Bank of England have been following the Federal Reserve in America and putting interest rates up. But except they were too late, they did too little. And now we are in the place that we are in, which is not a very good one. Let us now talk to Sebastian Gorka, Dr. Gorka, former agent Donald J. Trump, host of the America's First uh, Show and podcast, of course. Sebastian, a very good morning to you over there. Uh, good uh, afternoon to you, Mike. How you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Fortunately, um, I'm not going to be affected by this particular interest rate rise, but they've been doing it in America. Biden uh, has been pushing up the rates over there, making life very, very miserable for people. Um, we've got something to show you, though, Sebastian, before we go any further, because uh, I decided things are so bad with the uh, president of the free world. Uh, we started a little feature called The Daily Biden. Uh, and this is where we look at things that he has said. And have a look at this. This is what he said yesterday on uh, on his travels. How many of you know somebody with diabetes needs insulin? Well, guess what? And we, when we when when we, when Debbie and I passed this law, it included everybody, not just seniors. And so what happened was we said, okay, you know how much it costs to make that insulin drug for diabetes? Cost. It was invented by a man who did not patent it because he wanted it available for everyone. I spoke to him, okay? Joe Biden is very old, but he's not that old, I have to say. Um, that is, of course, the Daily Biden that we just saw there, Sebastian. Um, this is where we uh, quote from the president and things that he has said, including that uh, we were at war with Iraq the other day, uh, including where he couldn't find his way out of the White House on Halloween. Um, he claims that he met and spoke to the man who invented insulin, um, who invented insulin in the 1920s, a bloke called Frederick Banting and John McLeod. Um, they both were around in the 20s. They invented insulin then. They died somewhere in the 40s. I'm pretty sure Biden didn't speak to him. Yeah, Banting, who invented it in 1921, Mike, uh, died two years before Joe was born. So <laughs> I uh, either he's using a Ouija board or the guy senile. And in that speech where he said the war in Iraq instead of Ukraine, he actually went on to say, and this is, look, uh, you can take pity on him for being senile, but he actually said, uh, Iraq, where my son died. Yeah. Son Bo Biden, God rest his soul, died of brain cancer three years after he served in Iraq back in the US. So mm. what kind of person gets it wrong or lies about where his son died or mm. how his son died? It's just so, so peculiar. And this is what you get. We now have the oldest serving president ever in US history. And clearly he has cognitive issues. And at the same time, we've got 9% inflation rate. Two million legals across the border, a war in Europe. We, the biggest story right now, I had truckers calling into my show yesterday. We are on the verge of running out of diesel in the United States. Wow. Now, as you know, 
everything, everything you eat, you drink, everything that comes to your home comes on a lorry that is powered by diesel. Mm. So uh, we are we are on the, the edge of something very, very disturbing here in America. Absolutely right. And what's the problem with the supply of diesel? Are they not digging enough of it out of the ground? What are they not manufacturing it? What's going on? Well, the, the war on, on fossil fuels. I mean, think about this. Within within hours, literally hours of being sworn in on Inauguration Day, mm. what does Joe Biden do? He goes to the White House. He shuts down the XL Keystone pipeline. He says no more fracking, no more permits for oil exploration on federal grounds. We had, the first time ever, when we were in the White House, we were actually exporting energy. We had more energy than we could use. And it's not just about us. We lost 39,000 jobs in Canada because of the XL Keystone pipeline being shut down. So it's it's you know it's worshiping Greta Thunberg. It's like the Extinction Rebellion uh, people you've got in the UK. It is it is a, a situation where the elite are hostages to their own ideology, Mike. It really is extraordinary, isn't it? That America, the country that I spent so much time in, uh, where I have family that still live, um, has gone completely, it seems, starts staring mad. And it starts in the White House, doesn't it? But it's not just its not just that they're insane or they're, they're ideological. His speech, that he, he gave a political speech for the DNC, not an official presidential one, yesterday, in Union Station, which used to be a beautiful building. Now it's a, it's a homeless encampment. Of is course that they, right? That's awful, they, isn't it? Oh, it's, 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 it's a shadow of its former self. And in a 22-minute speech, Mike, yesterday, he said the word democracy 37 times, despite the fact that we're not a democracy, we're a federal republic. Hmm. And he said... He called us conservatives the threat to democracy. So here we are right now, five days away from an election. And you know what the threat to democracy is, Mike? If you don't vote Democrat. That's creepy. I mean, that's totalitarian. If you dare to choose to not vote for the incumbent Mm. party that has the Senate, the House and the White House, then you're a threat to democracy. I thought that's the definition of democracy, Mike, that you get a choice. Absolutely right. But this is the trouble, isn't it? Uh, We've got the same problem here, Sebastian, with those who don't want to talk about the migrant crisis. You've got it much worse with the people in their millions coming across the southern border uh, of California and Texas. We've got a problem with people coming here uh, illegally on boats. And anybody who puts up their hand to say this must be stopped is immediately branded a racist and somebody with no heart. And you must be a bigot and you must be a right winger. I actually had a lawyer on uh, who said I was right. I said, what makes you think I'm right wing? And he basically said, well, because you don't agree with me. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. Um, you know, this is a guy uh, who also objected to uh, being called a homosexual. Apparently, that's an offensive word now. And he said, I'd rather be called a gay man. I said, well, I don't care what I call you. You know. Hang on. Homosexual is offensive? That's what he said. I said, right, it's bad news, bad news for homophobia. I don't know what you call that then. It doesn't matter whether it's the UK, whether it's the United States, whether it's Switzerland or Vanuatu. If you don't have sovereign control over your your territory, you don't have a country. It's really quite that simple. It really is. And then there's the double standard. So I don't know if you've been following this very bizarre story about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's husband, being attacked at home. Very strange. We're supposed to believe, oh, it's the Conservatives. Yes, this is a pro-cannabis nudist. There are lots of, you know, Trump supporters who are pro-cannabis nudists who turns out, what did he turn out to be yesterday, Mike? Oh, he's an illegal alien from Canada. 
Well, that was deep six. That mm. was that was dropped into the memory hole that it's an illegal alien that right. attacked the Speaker of the House, his husband. Why are we not hearing about right. that? That's the double standard. So he doesn't even have a vote in, in effect in the country. Never mind that. But what is, tell me about the inflation. Because we've just had the Bank of England raise interest rates here to 3%, which is going to hurt an awful lot of ordinary homeowners and an awful lot of ordinary hardworking people. What has the Fed raising interest rates done to, to, to those people in America who are trying to keep their heads above the water? It's the same thing, but it's it's the same thing. It's it's not just the interest rates. It's the cost of living. When you when you look at the fact that people are having to choose between you know gas for their car and groceries, this is this is the, the shocking story. I I I know people, especially in impoverished areas in in New Hampshire and elsewhere, who cannot go to work because they can't afford the petrol for their vehicles. Mm. So they to find jobs elsewhere. This is this is the state of play right now that we have, you know, a, a cabinet that says we need to have green energy. Everybody should have a Tesla. W what are you talking about? People can't afford the Tesla. I mean, maybe AOC or Casio Cortez has her Tesla, but the average plumber who's driving a truck, the average, you know, carpenter, they can't make these choices. And it, it's we're on the verge of stagflation. I mean, officially we've had two 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 quarters of no growth, which means we're officially in a recession. White House denies it. But we're on the verge of stagflation as well, Mike. No, exactly right. So it's not the answer. It's the short uh, answer to what you've just told me is that, you know, putting up interest rates and making it even more difficult for people to pay their bills is really not the way forward, is it? The, the way forward is get government out of the way and to unleash the energy sector. That's very simple. It's the lifeblood of every economy, whether it's North Sea gas, North Sea oil, whether it's the shale, whether the fracking here, everything runs on fossil fuels. If you unleash that, if you get the government out of the way, think about this. This is, this is just a statement of fact. Don't listen to me. We had the largest economy the world had ever seen, not just in American history, the world had ever seen under the Trump presidency. We had the lowest unemployment for women since the 60s, the lowest unemployment for minorities since record keeping began. Mm. Why? Because we didn't believe in state intervention. We just said, get out of the way, get government out of the way and let people run their businesses. And it worked. Yeah, it really does. Final one on uh, Elon Musk. A uh, nice little tweet that he sent to uh, AOC uh, today. Uh, she was moaning and groaning about paying money to, uh, to keep a blue tick. But uh, I don't mind paying $8 a month. No, she, she, there was a great tweet earlier today uh, from Donald Trump Jr. Things uh, Elon Musk owns, and it has Tesla, SpaceX, and AOC. He totally <laughs> owned her yesterday because she said, oh, my gosh, this is a woman whose campaign garnered $30 million in her little precinct of New York. Right. She have you know the price of a Starbucks latte every month to get verified on Twitter and he said to her thank you for your input now pay your eight dollars I mean just <laughs> utterly priceless he's making all the right people insane so uh God God bless Elon Musk but I, I have a request for you Mike yes what is this about my favorite bounty bar can you just protect the bounty yes. bar listen as usual right the the wokists have obviously taken against it for some reason but as usual they're using data to try and convince us they claim that 39 percent of people don't like bounties right well hello Garb that means garbage. that means that 61 percent of people actually do like them so maybe do some maths research and keep the damn things in for christmas i have a box of celebrations every every christmas it's the only time i get them uh, and i'll be looking to see the bounties in there otherwise it's gonna be a big problem after mars bars as a kid who grew up in west <laughs> london 
after Mars bars, bounties are the second best. Dip yeah. those in your tea every morning and you'll be just right. Absolutely right. Brilliant. Thanks to see. Good to see you, Sebastian. Thank you very much indeed. Sebastian Gorka there, uh, bringing us a healthy dose of common sense from the other side uh, of the Atlantic, where I'm heading uh, sometime next week. But listen to this, right? Your home is not at risk um, unless you don't pay the mortgage. Basic interest rates up to 3%. What's it all going to mean for your mortgage? What's it going to mean for you? Russell Quirk, property expert, coming next right here on Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Russell Quirk, uh, who's our property expert, to find out how it's going to affect the pound in your pocket or the pound in your building society. Russell, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. I mean, it's all very well for Jeremy Hunt to say that uh, this is in line with our policy, but basically what the Bank of England have done today will cost people a lot of money, won't it? Yeah, so the, the bank's inflation target is 2%. It has been for ages and ages and ages. I would have to question that, Mike, I think, in terms of the wisdom of such a low inflation target. When Jeremy Hunt talks about inflation being our enemy, um, it, it's not as big an enemy as a crashing recessionary economy, right. is it? No. Um, and, and actually, I think, given the choice between... Uh, inflation at a very, very, very low rate historically or recession. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I choose not to have the recession, frankly. I mean, I, I'm not sure Jeremy Hunt right. and these politicians really understand what recessions do. I mean, most of them are old enough to remember the recession of 2008-9 and, of course, the recession of the early 90s that you and I remember, um, where that wasn't just about a bit of inflation. That was about three to four million people being unemployed. That was about people giving the keys back to their houses so they couldn't afford to service their mortgages. Mm. You know, that, that was about economic and social devastation. Yes. Um, I, I think we've got to start thinking a little bit differently about this Bank of England's 2% target. Um, and actually, Mike, honestly, 3% interest rates. Wow. How high? Well, I mean, I mean, you and I remember them being an awful lot higher. But the fact is, is that if you've got a three hundred thousand pound mortgage, and for many people in the southeast of England, that's not a particularly large mortgage. You're looking at maybe one hundred fifty, two hundred pound increase per month. Which we've just had a guy on saying his his mortgage of fourteen hundred a month is jumping to twenty four hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, that that's serious. I mean, and and obviously there's what they call the MMR, which is the stress test that was brought in a few years ago by, I think, George Osborne, actually, uh, where it was mandated that lenders had to ensure that when they were granting mortgages, there was a lot of elasticity, a lot of kind of leeway within the payment so that if interest rates did increase, as of course they have, that people will be able to afford them. So there is some protection here. But but also, I think the other thing that we need to understand, and look, I, I don't purport to be an economist, an expert. That's but, what we don't want. We don't want any economists on this show because they talk absolute gobbledygook and nobody understands them. Well, we definitely don't want... Uh, I know you herald me as an expert, but look, most experts get it wrong every single time. <laughs> and they certainly, have. they certainly have when it comes to the property market uh, and the economy over the last four or five years, you know, by all sorts of measures. Um, but we, I think we need to understand that, that the Bank of England rate going up by 0.75%, so 75 basis points today, ain't a good thing, right? I, I get that. But the thing that really drives the mortgage market, the cost of fixed rate mortgages, is the guilt rate. So that, without getting all kind of down and geeky is the the percentage return on government debt 
over the last couple of weeks, Mike, as you well know, that has plummeted. So the, the actual cost of long-term money has plummeted. That will start to be priced into the cost of fixed rates over the coming weeks and months. We've also got this situation with wholesale gas prices that are currently one-third of what they were in August. Mm. So they've also plummeted. That is all going to feed into the consumer pocket over the next few months or so. So, so I, I hate to be the kind of token optimist here, but it ain't that bad. And it's actually not going to get worse, in my opinion. It's probably going to get somewhat better over the next yes. three, four months. Well, certainly there are those who think that the inflationary spiral began a lot longer ago than 12 months. And therefore, the rise in inflation, which is calculated over the course of 12 months, actually will fall because it will mean that, you know, with every rising uh, month, 12 months ago, if you know what I mean, uh, we're now going down. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those complications where the Bank of England haven't got much right this year. And I've got no reason to believe they got this right. I was going to say, I mean, if only we had a central bank that had control of money supply and could have stopped printing money in the middle of the pandemic that would have in itself tempered the inflation that we now face. If only they'd managed to put up interest rates gradually, bit by bit, maybe eight, nine, ten yeah. months ago, in anticipation of inflation. Because bearing in mind, apart from printing money, the Bank of England has one job. And, and the, the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, who's on £550,000 a year, by the way, also has one job. But somehow we didn't see inflation coming. I mean, is he qualified for the job? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this is a very good question I've got here from Johnny. I don't expect you to answer this, but this is the sort of question that people want the answer to, and we will get it. Can you ask somebody to explain how interest rate rises will reduce the most inflationary products? Food, fuel and power, all are essentials, but should we all be cutting down to two days in a car, three days heating, four days eating? It's madness. Well, this is the thing. Nobody really understands. Inflation is something that you can't really describe. You can only say that it's happening, can't you? Yeah. And and the problem with the inflation we had, there are different types of inflation, apparently. And the inflation we have now, it started off being because of the recovery from the pandemic, the whole VE day spirit. People went out and started spending money. But the reason we have the acute inflation we have right now is because of the cost of energy, particularly the cost of fuel. Now, fuel is not just something we put in our tanks, which is now costing more money and therefore provides inflationary pressure, but it also it perpetuates through the food chain. So therefore, the cost of delivering goods to shops and so on also increases. That is the main reason that we have inflation. And and to his point, Jonathan, I think you said, yeah, yeah, his point is that we can't control that, not only as consumers, but this government can't control that. So what is the point in trying to put in place a blunt instrument mechanism to temper inflation when literally we have absolutely no control over it? The only control we've got over it, Mike, frankly, is someone pushing... Vladimir Putin down the steps of the Kremlin. Mm. That might solve inflation indirectly. Yeah, well, it might do. But, I mean, I, for example, can't explain why. Um, I was talking to one of my kids at the weekend. He bought some paint because he wanted to paint something. Uh, He said he bought some paint about three years ago and it cost nine quid. It now costs 14 quid, the same pot of paint. Now, there's no earthly reason why it's gone up that much. I think an awful lot of manufacturers are just taking the mickey and going, yeah, let's put another couple of quid on it, it'll be fine. Absolutely. I, I think that whether it's the energy companies, certainly the fuel companies, I mean, look, we saw this week, BP have just posted incredible profits. And look, I'm all for a profit. I'm a I'm a I'm a capitalist kind of corporate guy, right? I get all that. But if it is that the energy companies, the food companies and so on, uh, and the mortgage companies in the future, the lenders, if they start increasing their margins because they've got the excuse to do so, hiding behind what's happening in the kind of the, the, the global economy and the kind of the geopolitical situation, then that would be shameful. And, and look, I do hope our useless politician, you know, most of them being useless to a man and a woman, 
Well, actually, on behalf of the good people of Britain, our consumers, make sure that they are ensuring that whether it's fuel, whether it's the cost of money, whether it's food, whatever it is, that the cost of that stuff is proportionate to the wholesale costs as they come down. Mm. And what about the bounty inflation? Because we're now going to be told that if you buy a box of celebrations for Christmas for the family, you won't have any bounties in them. Sorry, what, I saw this this morning, but what is it? Is this that bounties are some kind of cultural appropriation thing? I don't think so. No, they're just saying people don't like them. But they're saying that 39% of people don't like them, which is not a majority. Well, look, but like most of these things, I wouldn't eat one every day, but I enjoy a bounty every now and again. I mean, yeah. look, it's... Um, Small, small Actually, I, I've asked for the advert. We might have to play the advert out because I like. I used to like the taste of paradise. You might remember that. Uh, we're going to do a bit of that later on. Russell, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Russell Quirk, property expert on the news. As the Chancellor says, uh, sound money and stable economy are the best ways to deliver lower mortgage rates, more jobs and long-term growth. This on the day that mortgage rates have just gone up. Well done, Jeremy. Jeremy Hunt, of course, not Jeremy Kyle. We'll be talking to him coming up shortly. Helena Nicklin's here as well. Because it's Thursday, time for the Thursday Club, we're going to do some cheap fizz for you. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.